0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening,
1: I'm Victor Blackwell. with me tonight to discuss the day's most interesting stories— Donald Trump's former impeachment attorney, a lawyer for one of the mafia bosses that Rudy Giuliani prosecuted, Eric Deggins, Kerry Champion, Daniel Dale and Lynette Lopez. But first, if Democrats are not worried about next year's election, new numbers suggest they should be. Listen to this, in two new polls, the general election is a dead heat if the matchup is President Biden versus Donald Trump again, a dead heat. Despite Trump now facing his fourth indictment, 91 charges in all, and several trials next year while people will be voting. Something else noteworthy as we talk about the health of America's democracy, nearly 60% of Republicans today think that Biden was not elected legitimately. Also today, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis says that she wants Trump's Georgia trial to start the day before Super Tuesday. And of course, Trump is intensifying his rhetoric against prosecutors and judges in all of his cases. And one of his supporters today was charged with threatening to kill the judge overseeing his federal election fraud case. Using racial slurs, she threatened to kill Judge Chutkin if Trump does not win in 2024. Let's bring in now former Whitewater independent counsel and former federal prosecutor Robert Ray. He also defended former President Trump during the first impeachment trial. Uh, Robert, good to see you. Uh, thanks for being on So I hear that this is your first opportunity to respond publicly to this fourth indictment. You've had a little time for it to resonate. What do you think? What do you see in those pages?
2: I think my first reaction is I was inclined to agree with uh, former Governor Chris Christie and a, a presidential candidate that this fourth one was heavy handed and in some sense unnecessary as duplicative of what Jack Smith has already Uh, charged. That's not to say that uh, the district attorney has um, every right uh, to proceed in the exercise of discretion as, as she deems appropriate. On the other hand, though, I will say my experience has been is that, generally speaking, when the federal government proceeds through federal prosecutors in a prosecution, the the rule, the general rule is, and it's not you know always followed. There are exceptions that state state and local authorities defer to the federal prosecution, and that's not happened in this case. You know for various reasons, but you know in the space of a little more than four months, we now have four indictments against the former president. It just strikes me as a bit uh, heavy-handed. I have said previously with regard to the other cases that it seems like the exercise of prosecutorial discretion has gone out the window. And I think overall, my sense, in the best interest of the country, that I'm worried about, about the course, the path that we're on, and that we may well rue the day that we have traveled down this path. And when I say that, you, you did, uh, I think, appropriately, mention the, the places where this intersects with the political process, and it's the timing of these trials, where inevitably you're going to have clashes between uh, judges and, and juries and trials and the political process and um, that doesn't justify violence so let me be clear absolutely federal judges and any judge needs to be protected in our system and they should feel free from uh, this sort of nonsense whether it's you know a, a crank call or something you know, potentially much more serious it's intolerable it doesn't matter what the issue is that 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 cannot be that's not acceptable and that will be met with the the full force of uh, the criminal law as necessary in order to protect the judges and to prevent this sort of thing from from recurring.
1: So, Robert, that that answer takes me down several routes, but I'm going to start where you ended off and that there should be no threats of violence. There should be uh, no, um, as we saw with this woman in Texas, uh, threats to kill uh, judges, prosecutors, also uh, threats against members of Congress. What role does your former client play in this? As uh, Judge Shutkin warned him about making statements that could um, uh, threaten, uh, witnesses that could, uh, impede in this process in any way. He has, uh, criticized the judge. Do you expect there will be some action against the, the former president? Should there be some controls?
2: Well, there are some controls and the judges have always pointed out that there's, a, there are limits to the first amendment, but you know, in the political process where the, the first Amendment's interests are, are, are heightened, You know, it's one thing to say, for example, that Mike Pence is a witness in a a criminal case. It's another thing to say that Donald Trump is prevented from criticizing uh, sharply a a fellow presidential candidate. And by the same token, you know, I am well familiar with the dangers that that the judges face and are familiar with uh, judges who have been not just uh, subject to threats, but uh, violence and in, in several instances in in my lifetime as a prosecutor judges who have been killed. So this is serious business. And I don't, you know, I think everybody needs to watch uh, their, their language. But it's true on both sides. You know, Senator Schumer, for example, the majority leader of the Senate, had uh, strong words to say about Justice Kavanaugh uh, and Justice Gorsuch um, that I think, you know, in, in some respects led directly to the sort of protests and, and danger uh, that, that uh, Justice Kavanaugh in, in particular uh, w- was faced with. All of those things are, you know, are, are something to be watchful of. We can have strong debate in the political process, uh, but we do have to be mm. mindful that uh, those actions have, have consequence, consequences. And then uh, you know, at the outer edges, there, there's behavior that just simply is not acceptable. So I guess my, to answer your question, I think there are limits. And right. I think those limits will be policed but I, I will also say that you know, in the political process, there's going to be a collision uh, with regard to those varying interests uh, as we get to trying to set trial dates. Since yeah. it seems like you know, the bulk of these prosecutors are anxious to get uh, these trials started and completed. Uh, before the, the 2024 20, election cycle concludes. I have my strong doubts about whether or not that's possible or that it's in the country's best best interest that those cases go forward prior to the election.
1: So what what do you mean by it's in the country's best interest, uh, the, the, I guess, skepticism or concerns about it happening before the election? This goes to the point about being heavy-handed. If these, uh, these uh, the district attorneys and They believe that these crimes were committed in their districts. Do they not have a responsibility to bring these charges and to pursue uh, swift justice?
2: Well, it's always a question of of prosecutorial discretion. Um, You know, I I don't think, you know, any prosecution is ever compelled. And I think you do have to have an eye when it's when you're dealing with a former president and and a current presidential candidate about what damage prosecutions may do. Uh, to the political process, because it's not just the interest of the defendant and the, and the public in terms of the respect for the law, it's also the interests of the country with regard to uh, the fair conduct of an election. I, I mean, I, I prefer to rely on, on Lincoln's words, uh, A patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people. I think we've lost patience in this political process and we seem that we want to have prosecutors, you know, cure all ills and decide all these things. We've got now a number of special prosecutors running around and district attorneys who feel free to be able to charge a former president. We're going to get to the point where we are so engulfed in that process that it's almost like You know, get all the prosecutors in the room and let them sort out between Joe Biden and and Donald Trump, who should be president. That's not a political system I want to live in. I think that cedes too much power to prosecutors. And I think it's an an inherently dangerous road to travel.
1: All right. Robert Ray, thank you so much for being with us. So among the 19 defendants charged in the Georgia, uh, Georgia case is former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani. He faces 13 counts, including so-called racketeering charges. Now, this is ironic, given Giuliani himself was a major force in using RICO laws to take down organized crime when he was U.S. attorney with the Southern District of New York. Now, that includes figures like Fat Tony Salerno, the former head of the Genovese crime family. My next guest is a criminal defense attorney who once represented Salerno, Anthony Cardinale, it joins me now. Anthony, thanks for being with me. Let me start here. Um, you told one of our producers that you get a kick out of this. Why?
3: Well, you get a kick out of seeing, uh, you know, the damage, if you will, to to uh, to families and uh, by by bringing broad, broad, uh, sweeping, multi-count RICO indictments against. Uh, Clients of mine, including Mr. Salerno. Uh, and uh, this is something that uh, uh, Rudy always crowed about his ability to to bring RICO cases, et cetera, And, and uh, he built his whole career on it. And now he's on the receiving end. And uh, I'm frankly happy to see it land in his lap like it landed in the laps of a lot of the people that he uh, he prosecuted throughout the 80s. Yeah,
1: you mentioned uh, the former governor, uh, former mayor, talking about using uh, the RICO uh, statutes when he was a U.S. attorney. Let's listen to uh, what he said about some of those RICO cases. The upper-level people
4: are not used to being convicted, and they're certainly not used to being convicted under racketeering. Charging them with violations of the the federal racketeer-influenced-and-corrupt-organization statute, the RICO statute. This is a new way of doing business and a much more effective way to really crush them. I think the two of them together would make an excellent uh, RICO case, racketeering case, like the cases I used
1: to bring not only against the mafia, but also against Boski. So, Funny Willis has brought yeah, this I mean, in this political co- Go ahead, go ahead.
3: No, I was just saying. Just watching him uh, spout off like that makes me even happier that he's now on the receiving end. So, good luck to him. Um, I hope uh, all the things he uh, that he uh, claims are are great about bringing racketeering cases. He gets he gets the full weight of.
1: Do you think he has a defense? And I mean, how would you, based of. on what you've? You've uh, seen and read in this indictment. What's the defense for Giuliani
3: here? I, I I really don't know, but I think if I could put my my uh, my defense hat on, despite my my personal feelings, uh, and having tried to uh, to a jury in in multi multi defendant RICO cases, I've had uh, ten, 10 racketeering uh, trials to uh, to a verdict, and uh, several others that ended in in uh, pleas. So you know, I know what it's like to, to be in there and trying to uh, to fight uh, a very strong indictment like the one that uh, D.A. Wills just brought. So uh, uh, I think what he's going to try to do is say that, look, there's no real enterprise here, which is one of the two required elements. You have to have uh, an enterprise, a, a separate enterprise, and then a connected series of uh, pa- a pattern of racketeering. Yeah. And what what you can see when you read the, the indictment, um, all 96 pages and, and 41 counts and, and all the rest of it, is that they've got 161 acts listed as, as pr- potential predicate acts, any two of which that are found, should the enterprise be found to exist by a jury, Is enough to convict everybody so I think what he's going to try try to do is say look this is not uh, there's no there's no uh, there's no evidence uh, to support the enterprise that you need here and and you know what the problem is that you know he forgets Uh, and just as you saw in that montage he thinks that you know this was something that was uh, you know useful against organized crime figures like the 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 sweeping uh, Commission case he constantly crows about but um it can be any group uh any in, uh, uh, any informal or formal or formal group of individuals if they have this common purpose and they're functioning as a unit and as we saw in georgia the with States the Court.
1: Uh, the da there who brought against the atlanta public schools in the the uh, testing scandal there uh several years ago let me ask you one more here and and you're a, a unique guest to get this answer from when you back up and just look at the the scope of Rudy Giuliani's career from U.S. attorney to mayor of New York and the America's mayor years and presidential candidate to what he has become over the last eight years. What what runs through your mind when you look at that arc?
3: Well, uh, you know, uh, if if I can leave my personal feelings aside and try to look at it objectively, because my personal feelings would be uh, quite a bit harsher than I'm about to say. But it's a sad it's a sad decline of a guy that at one point had a very, uh, very unique uh, 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 sense of well, he, he was he was a, a star, if you will, politically and, and as a prosecutor. And now um, he's a defendant facing uh, a racketeering case, just like all the guys that uh, he, he crows about putting in jail in the through the 80s uh, when he was trying when his office was trying these cases, not him. All right.
1: Anthony Cardinale, thank you so much for the, uh, the time and the insight.
3: Not, no, no problem. Thank you.
1: And be sure to tune in this weekend as CNN goes inside Rudy Giuliani's rise and fall. The CNN original series, Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor, this Saturday at 8 p.m. All right, Justin, new reporting on whether Trump will attend next week's Republican debate. Plus, some conservatives are cheering for a mugshot hoping to immortalize Trump like Sinatra, or Hendrix, and Cash. We'll discuss why both Trump and prosecutors may want the picture for different reasons. And he predicted the housing crash, and now the Big Short investor is betting on a stock market crash. You're gonna hear why. The Georgia indictment charging Donald Trump with racketeering, among other crimes, lists at least 27 lies he told about the 2020 election. By comparison, the federal indictment earlier this month accusing Trump of trying to overturn the election lists 21. Let's bring in now senior reporter Daniel Dale, CNN fact checker extraordinaire. All right, Daniel, walk us through it.
5: I'm going to talk faster than normal, so forgive me. Number one was Trump's overarching lie that he won the 2020 election. He lost. Number two is his lie that he won Georgia in 2020. He claimed at least once that he won by 400,000 votes. He lost Georgia by 11,779 votes. The result was certified by Republicans. Number three was his lie that there was, quote, massive voter fraud in Georgia. There wasn't massive voter fraud there or anywhere else in the country. Number four was his related lie that the number of false and or irregular votes was much bigger than the number needed to give him a Georgia victory he made this claim in september 2021. Number five is his lie that he, quote, also won the other swing states in 2020. He lost not only Georgia, but Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Wisconsin. Number six was his effort to get top DOJ officials to lie. Trump allegedly urged them to, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Number seven and eight are about Vice President Pence. Number seven, that Pence had the power to reject Biden electoral votes. Pence told him this was illegal, unconstitutional. Number eight, Trump had his campaign issue a false January 5th statement declaring that Pence totally agreed with him on this, even though Pence had again told him that very day that he totally disagreed. Number nine was Trump's lie that phony pro-Trump electors in swing states he lost were real electors. And then the indictment also gets into a whole bunch of specific lies he told about Georgia. Number 10 is lie that anywhere from 250 to 300,000 ballots were mysteriously dropped or dumped in the rolls. In fact, these were normal votes counted as normal. Number 11 was a related lie that huge number of votes were dumped into Fulton County and the Jason County also did not happen. Number 12 is Trump's lie that a full County election worker was caught on video stuffing the ballot box. In fact, she did nothing wrong. And number 13 was his related lie that this worker, Ruby Freeman, is a professional vote scammer. In fact, she was a fully exonerated elections worker. He was relentlessly maligning for no good reason. Number 14 was Trump's lie that Georgia had nearly 5,000 ballots cast in the names of deceased people. The Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger told him that they actually found two such ballots, later updated the number to just four. Number 15 was Trump's lie that about forty-five. Uh, 4,500 people voted in Georgia even though they were not registered. Raffensperger wrote in his book that their pro proved there were zero unregistered voters. Number 16 was Trump's lie that Georgia had thousands and thousands of people who were told they couldn't vote because a ballot had already been cast in their name. As Raffensperger noted, this is just imaginary, completely made up. Number 17 is Trump's lie that Georgia had, quote, at least 66,247 underage voters. Raffensperger informed Congress on January 6th that the actual number was Zero. Number 18 was Trump's lie about at least 1,043 Georgians having voted after registering using only a P.O. box. Raffensperger told Congress that a simple Google search showed many of these supposed P.O. boxes were actually apartments. Number 19 was Trump's lie that as many as 2,560 felons had illegally voted in the state. Raffensperger said his analysis showed the maximum even potential number of such voters was 74. Number 20 is Trump's lie that during this now infamous phone call with Raffensperger where he pressured him to overturn Biden's win, Raffensperger was unwilling or unable to address his various debunked claims. In reality, Raffensperger personally debunked them in detail and at length. And then the indictment, Victor, gets into Trump's lies to Georgia officials, including Raffensperger, about what happened in other states. So number 21 was his lie that 139% of Detroit residents voted nonsense. In fact, Detroit had 51% turnout. Number 22 was his lie that Pennsylvania counted more than 200,000 more votes than it had actual voters. Again, just made up, not even close to true. Number 23 was Trump's lie that thousands of dead people voted in Michigan. Again, made up. Number 24, 25, and 26 are other Trump lies about the election in Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Michigan. The indictment didn't specify which ones, but you can basically take your pick. And then finally, number 27 is Trump's lie that states knew their certified vote totals were, quote, based on irregularities and fraud. As we know, state vote totals were entirely legitimate.
1: Mmm, that's a lot. You got it all in, Daniel. That's um, Get yourself a, a swig of Gatorade or some Propel and stick around because we'll bring you back. Um, thank you for that. In just days, Trump is expected to walk into the Fulton County Jail for his arraignment. No surrender date has been agreed upon yet, but DA Fonnie Willis has set a deadline for Trump and the 18 co-defendants to surrender by next Friday. A key difference here from his federal and the New York cases that Trump could get a mugshot. But on Fox, opinions on whether or not that's a good thing, those are mixed. Here's Laura Ingram earlier tonight.
5: These people are sick. How is a mugshot of the former president in any way necessary or in any way good for America? Are they really worried that he's going to disappear into the general population or that as a 2024 presidential candidate that he's going to try to leave the country, flee?
1: Okay, so that's not what we heard over there earlier this year. Watch this.
3: You remember the mugshots of Elvis and Frank Sinatra and Johnny Cash and Jimi Hendrix and Mick Jagger turned them into even bigger icons than they were. If there's a mugshot of Donald Trump, it'll be in dorm rooms and on T-shirts, making him a hero or an anti. No, will. And rightfully
0: so.
1: And rightfully so, he says. Joining me now, NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. He's the author of A Race Baiter, How Media Wield Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Uh, Eric, good to have you tonight. So can we just start before we get into this um, uh, back and forth over politics of it, just the gravity of the mugshot of a former president and what that would mean?
6: Sure, thanks for having me, Victor, and even though you made me follow that amazing presentation by Daniel, which was uh, incredibly awesome. But, um, you know, what strikes me about this situation is that there, as you mentioned earlier, there are 18 other people who've been uh, indicted along with Donald Trump. And so the answer to the question of why should there be a mugshot is if there's 18 mugshots of the other co-defendants and he doesn't have to take one, then that's your picture of a two-tiered justice system, where uh, you know, as some people have said, you know, Donald Trump kind of gets the Cad- the Cadillac VIP treatment when he is processed and takes a booking photo and is arraigned, and then everyone else uh, has to has to get the uh, you know the, the the regular class treatment uh, if they really want to prove. Uh, that Donald Trump isn't getting preferential treatment. It seems important that he have the same booking photo that everyone else who's been indicted uh, has to take. Yeah. And the,
1: the D.A. and the Fulton County Sheriff, they've both said that he's going to be treated like every other person who comes uh, through that that jail. So on the um, the issue of these T-shirts and posters in dorm rooms, it really is likely that we're going to see that um, in the dorm rooms or on T-shirts of people who support the president. And for uh, those of people, those are people who do not support the president, Republicans and Democrats, it really depends upon, you know, what you want to see in this mugshot.
6: Well, I do believe that the Trump campaign has already created a fake mugshot yeah. that is on T-shirts that they're selling. So that's already happened. And in fact, you know, you're right. I think uh, if Donald Trump does take a booking photo, it will become a symbol for different people, depending on how they feel about Donald Trump. His supporters will see it as evidence that he's being persecuted, uh, but people who are critical of Donald Trump will, of course, see it as evidence that he's, he's broken another norm and degraded uh, the presidency to the point where we now have a mugshot of someone who used to be president. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing that strikes me is the minute that all of them take their booking photos, that is a guaranteed campaign ad uh, for any, uh, particularly for any Republican who is, uh, who has enough uh, gumption to actually create an attack ad going after Trump. Uh, for his many indictments.
1: Well, that's a short list uh, so far in this primary uh, competition. (laughs) So uh, we've got new reporting that uh, Trump advisors say that he's likely not going to debate next Wednesday, and also that he's plotting counter-programming. I wonder, first, if he skips it, do the viewers skip it? And how does the media handle it if if Trump, let's say, goes to Georgia and surrenders that day?
6: Well, you know, Trump is sort of the master of taking control of the media spotlight. And one of the things that's been a challenge for reporters like us is that uh, Trump is very good at creating events that we feel compelled to cover. So if he does turn himself in uh, very visibly uh, at a time when the debate is happening, you you better believe on CNN there'll be a split screen (laughs) showing the debate. And showing Donald Trump turning himself in. Um, And, you know, as political experts have been saying, uh, there's a lot of good reasons for him not to participate in this debate, uh, not only because he seems to be ahead in most every poll, but because every potential answer during a debate may be fodder, for the four indictments that he's facing, yeah, good point. and and you know one of the questions you have to ask is you know can he even participate in a debate when he might be asked the kind of questions that would give his lawyers heart attacks as they try uh, to figure out defenses to these multiple charges that he's facing in multiple jurisdictions.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, and some of those opponents might want to pull that out of him uh, as he's on stage with them. Eric Deggins, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Next, President Biden tells several lies in his speech. Daniel Dale returns after all of that with another fact check. Plus, you've been hearing about this blindside scandal, but this is not the first alleged myth about this made-for-Hollywood story. Carrie Champion joins me ahead. Well, sometimes President Biden uh, just cannot stop himself. During a speech today about the economy, he told at least two lies that have already been debunked. Daniel Dale is back after a good stretch with another fact check. Uh, Daniel, so we know the president loves the trains. He loves Amtrak. Uh, He's told this same story several times about a conversation that he claims that he had during his vice presidency with an Amtrak conductor named Angelo Negri. Let's listen to it.
4: And... uh so I'm getting on a train to go home and see my mom, who was sick and in hospice at my home. <laughs> and this guy—I won't mention his name because I get him in trouble—but one of the senior guys in Amtrak, who I rode ro- 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 with all the time, comes up and goes, "Joey, baby!" grabs my cheek. I said, "What's the matter, Angie?" He said, "We just—I read this thing about a, over a million miles on Air Force planes." He said, "Hell, you know how many miles you travel on Amtrak?" I said, "No, Angie, I don't know." He said, we just had a retirement dinner up in Newark. He said, you traveled hundred average 117 days a year, round trip, 300 miles a day, 36 years. That's 1,285,000 miles. I don't want to hear any more about the Air Force.
5: <laughs> True story. I swear to God.
1: True story. All right, what is the truth?
5: It's not, a, it's not a true story, and it was false in 2021 when I did a fact check pointing out it was false then. President Biden has repeated it over and over since. So it's, it's false in two ways. First of all, th- this conversation about the, the million miles uh, flying milestone could not have happened because Mr. Negri was an Amtrak conductor, was deceased at the time it would have had to occur. Uh, he passed that milestone, the vice president, uh, in September 2015. Mr. Negri died more than a year prior in 2014. The second false element, Victor, is is uh, the president said that his mother uh, was sick at the time in hospice in his home. In fact, she had died more than five years prior to him reaching that million miles flown milestone on Air Force Two. So two false elements. Now, I did speak in 2021 to Mr. Negri's stepdaughter. She said they were indeed friends. Uh, uh, her late stepfather adored Mr. Biden, spoke of him often. So there was a relationship there. But look, we I've counted at least nine times as president that Biden has told this story about his friend that is just inaccurate. So it's, it's probably time he retires it.
1: Yeah, it seems like a favorite of his. The president also repeated a version of a, a family story he told in April about his grandfather's death being just days before his own birth at the same hospital. Let's listen to that.
4: By the way, my grandpa Biden died very young. He was, died in the hospital I was born in six days before I was there, before I was born.
1: This is an economy speech, by the way. I just want people to know (laughs) why the president is there. What can you tell us about this?
5: So this one is also false in two ways. Uh, His late grandfather, who was an oil executive, uh, Joseph H. Biden, died more than a year before he was born. Uh, so not a few days or a couple weeks, as he's previously said. And in a different hospital, his his uh, late grandfather died in Baltimore. Uh, President Biden was famously born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I have no idea why what the point of this false claim is. Uh, you know, sometimes people get false stories from family members, but it's the second time he's done it. He was fact checked the first time. So, again, it's time he stops.
1: Yeah, retire that one too, uh, Daniel Dale. Thank you. Good work tonight. The big short investor making another bold bet. Should we be worried about Michael Burry's $1.6 billion gamble on a stock market crash? Plus, from the blind side to the broad side, the family accused of denying millions to former NFL player Michael Orr are now pointing at him, alleging that he is attempting a shakedown.
4: To read numbers how big's your short position right now uh
3: just the 1.3 billion and the premiums well we pay uh roughly 80 to 90 million <laughs> each year which
4: is high but i was the first to do this trade
3: watch
6: it will pay I, I may have been early but i'm not wrong
1: yeah he wasn't wrong that was christian bale playing michael burry in the big short he was one of the first major investors on Wall Street to discover America's massive sure. housing market bubble. When nearly everyone else disagreed, he shorted the market and made hundreds of millions of dollars on that bet. Well, now he's doing it again, but this time he's putting $1.6 billion on the line in preparation for another downturn. This time, a U.S. stock market crash. Joining me now is senior business correspondent for Business Insider, Lynette Lopez. Lynette, uh, good evening to you. You know how sometimes you see people running and you don't know why? You just start running with them because you think there's something they're running from?
7: I would um, definitely run, yes. Okay, away run. from the danger, whatever it is. Yes.
1: Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What are people supposed to do when they see him making this move?
7: Well, I, we don't have $1.6 billion to put to work. So, uh, And most people who are trading in the stock market are long-term investors. But what this could be expressing is a viewpoint of what's going to happen to the American economy, and that is that inflation is going to be a little harder to fight than the stock market has been thinking for the last couple of months while it's been rallying, mm. and that we will have to keep rates higher for longer. That will put stress on the American economy, slow down the economy. That will impact corporate profits, which will in turn bring down the stock market. And that is what you are potentially seeing expressed in this bet. now. Does that mean that the economy is going to collapse? We're going to have another 2008. It's going to be this big, horrible situation. No. You know, the stock market and the economy are not always the same thing. And just because you have a slowdown in the economy from the, the hot, inflated place where we've seen it the uh, going, coming out of the pandemic, just because we slow down from there doesn't necessarily mean we're in a recession. But, you know, it does mean that stocks will fall. Hmm. So he's
1: using more than, I think it's 90 percent of his portfolio to bet on this market downturn. The question always is when, right? Is there any idea to know the timing of this, when we'll see this this turnaround?
7: No. I mean, I, I not me, I've, I'm not Michael Burry, but I, no. But what we do know is that over the past couple of days, the stock market has started to get a little scared of itself, start to sell off because um, we're starting to see signs that inflation is a little bit stickier. The retail sales number for July came in hotter than we expected. Gas prices are going up. The Ukraine war is still very hot, which could impact food prices as well. So the Fed still has to keep um, its eye on squashing inflation, keeping rates higher and slowing things down. That's what we have seen the past couple of days. And the stock market has reacted by just heading down, puking.
1: Oh, okay. That's one way
7: (laughs) If you want to get technical (laughs) about it, it that's a a word you might hear on Wall Street for it. Make it plain. All right.
1: So uh, the the fund, Burris Fund, it's returned uh, more than 50% of of the last three years. Um, Outpacing its competition, S&P 500 as well. Do you think that other investors will follow this time? They didn't follow his lead, um, what, 15 years ago. Are they going to follow him now?
7: I mean, which investors? You have to be a very sophisticated person to follow what he is doing. Um, Most people who trade stocks regularly, especially if you happen to be one of those people who jumped into the stock trading game um, when you got your Robinhood account, during the pandemic, you're not going to be able to follow what Michael Burry is doing. You can't follow what the greats are doing, um, because that's this is a professional sport. This is a very sophisticated game. So, I would say consumers at home, retail investors at home, don't worry about this too much. Um, it's going to be choppy because there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know when the Fed is going to stop hiking rates. We don't know when. A lot of the story of the economy, of its next phase, is going to start being written. And we're going to close this Mm. chapter on our inflationary period post-pandemic. Some people thought it was going to end at the end of this year. Now we're pushing that out into next year. But only, you know, we fought inflation in the 70s and 80s, and it didn't go in a straight line down. And yeah. it doesn't have to go in a straight line down this time either. So we, that level of uncertainty always shakes the stock market up. And unless you're a pro, I wouldn't try to time it.
1: All right. Ride it out. Lynette Lopez, thanks so much. And give me some new terms. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. the new vocabulary. Hey, thanks have so me
7: back. I'll teach you more about <laughs> Certainly the technicals. Will. Yep.
1: Thank you. <laughs> All right, new finger porting between the former NFL player depicted in the blind side and the family who took him in. Just how much of the Oscar winning movie is based on reality? Jeez, we'll you're look right. at the alleged oh, the myths next.
8: Mike Vanegar. Hey, my name's Leanne Toohey, My kids go to Wingate. You said you were going to the gym. School gym's closed. Why were you going to the gym? Big Mike, why were you going to the gym?
6: Because it, it's warm.
8: Do you have any place to stay tonight? Don't you dare lie to me.
1: Remember Michael Orr? He's the former NFL player whose uh, adoption by a rich white family was the subject of that 2009 film, The Blind Side. Well, now Orr claims the story was a lie. He now alleges that he was never actually adopted by Sean and Leanne Tui. Instead, he claims he was tricked into a conservatorship and did not see one cent of the movie's profits. The Tui family's attorney calls those claims absurd. They also said the Tui family would not hesitate to defend their good names and stand up to this shakedown. Now, this is not the first time Orr has said that uh, there's been inaccuracies in the blind side story. He criticized the movie for portraying him as dumb. Uh, and I think the biggest for me is, you know, being portrayed, uh, not being able to read or write. Orr also took issue with the movie, making it seem like he didn't know how to play football. I understand that the movie has given me a position. I'm honored to have the position it's given me. But, you know, you have to understand before I moved in with the family, I was an All-American. Let's bring it down CNN contributor Kerry Champion. Kerry, good to see you. Um, This is this is sad, right? That's the first feeling I have. You've got this from Michael Orr. Also, the family now says that they accuse him of a shakedown. What do you make of this?
8: Well, you are are very corrected how you describe it. Simple but true. It's extremely sad because clearly there was love between the two, right? Michael Orr loved this family. They did take him in. They did provide shelter. They did feed him, clothe, clothe him in many ways in which he didn't have. But the sad part is, is now that they're arguing with one another, and they're trying to figure out what is wrong, I think that this relationship is beyond repair. Mm. Uh, I do agree with Michael Orr's assessment. He was not taught football at a kitchen table uh, with condiments, as portrayed in the movie. He was very intelligent. He was very smart. I think what we're arguing here is semantics. They have used the word adoption, and it's clear that he has not been adopted. It was a conservatorship, which in fact, he said he didn't know it was that. And so now we're sitting here at 37 years old. They still have a legal conservatorship over Michael Orr. Something is wrong here. And I do believe we don't know a lot. I feel like there is a lot that is missing, and we'll find this all out with court documents. But unfortunately, a relationship that I believe that started um, in the purest form, with the two he's really, truly wanting to help this young kid named Michael Orr yeah. has blossomed into something that we see often when people have money, when people have fame, um, oftentimes families get divided. And he has said over and over again, he's considered them family.
1: Yeah, it really is sad. And for this conservatorship now to be in his late thirties, he signed contracts with the NFL, uh, over those years. So why does he still need this? Let me uh, play something here from, uh, Sean Leantui's son, he says uh, Orr's lawsuit was a matter of time. Listen. I knew it was coming. I mean, it, it was a matter
3: of um, time, so I, I went back to my text today to look at, uh, I was curious today randomly to go back to look at our family group texts and, and text to see what things had been said. And there were things back in 2020, 2021 that they were like, you know, if you guys give me this much, then I won't go public with things. And. Mm.
1: So that's SJ. What do you make of the timing uh, of this?
8: Yeah, the timing is interesting. So so I looked at, and I got to be honest because I think most people are thinking this, is Michael Orr hard up for cash? I looked at his total earnings, upwards of $30 million, not including endorsement deals. Um, the two E's in their own right were extremely rich. Where did they benefit in terms of the financial aspect? What I do believe is that when he went to Ole Miss, he was influenced by the Tui's, And because Sean Tui played basketball at Ole Miss, he didn't want to appear to be a booster. Uh, so that would be a violation of name, image, and likeness NCAA rules. And so I think he was protecting himself as and the family as well as Michael. I think that What we are looking at right now is someone after the fact who has perspective, who has lived some life, being Michael Orr. He's like, wait a minute, where did all that money go? Hmm. They did receive two and a half percent on the back end. This film did make three hundred million dollars. I'm confused because I was told I was adopted in some form or fashion. And he feels as if they owe him something. But the family is holding true. I don't think money is the issue here. I think what you said initially in the most simple and the most plain form is that it's sad. It's a relationship where there is a deep betrayal. Michael Orr feels as if he has been betrayed by them and vice versa. This family feels like we've taken you in. You had nowhere to go. Um, And now this is how you repay us. I I feel as if as this relationship went on, there should have been more transparency and there wasn't. There was always this low-key resentment. Michael Orr has always taken issue with the movie and how the storyline of him not being smart and him not necessarily knowing what he wanted to do and the Tui's came in and saved him. He's like, well, hold on, that's just not true. As mentioned, as you played in the show, I've been All-American. I was already on my way to being drafted. I was already on my way to actually, rather, correction, going to some great school. I had coaches coming after me since I was a young kid. So I I think unfortunately-
1: You didn't teach me uh, football with uh, ketchup and mustard on the, on the table. Uh, listen, Kerry Champion, good to see you. Thank you so much you for the too. insight. And thank you for
0: watching. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that.